This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron. I'm one of your hosts, Ming Chang. I'm Keith Baker. I'm Imogen Jinjo. And in this episode, we'll be talking about gnomes. Horrible. No, wait, hang on. <laughs> We're talking about dread gnomes. Actually, I'm just joking around because uh, gnomes are horrible and evil. Um, We're actually going to be talking about horror. And we're going to talk a little bit about the new book that Wizard just came out with, uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, and how does that work in Eberron. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, new listeners and and old listeners. Thank you for for joining us. Uh, Just a quick uh, announcement sort of thing. You know, uh, we are sponsored by KB Presents, uh, an imprint together studios. Uh, So you you got some time. Go check us out. Go check out some of the, the stuff that we do. And uh, we've got a couple of references for this episode, and I promise you it's not going to be about gnomes. Um, we've got two specific Dragon Mark episodes written by that Keith Baker guy. Oh, actually, sorry, one episode, uh, one thing was uh, uh, Keith wrote something about ghost stories. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. And also, I guess, if it's not launched by now, <laughs> um, we are going to be, we are actually launching a book that everybody knows as um, Project Pomegranate. Um, that's actually Dread Metro, uh, Eberron and Ravenloft. Uh, a very, very specific uh, set of things. We'll be talking a little bit about that ep- uh, during this episode, so I'm not going to spoil anything. Um, but yeah, Ravenloft, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty well-known setting, a pretty liked setting. Um, so let's start off with that. Like, you know, why are we talking about Ravenloft when we're never on, on podcast, right? Um, let me start off by saying, what is Ravenloft, right? So for, for listeners who are not as familiar with different settings... Uh, Ravenloft was created by Laura and Tracy Hickman, uh, two writers and game designers, and it was really meant as a a bridge between the vampire is a monster and it's sitting in a dungeon to actually creating uh, a sort of a, a story around this, and that's that's the uh, sort of dreadlord uh, Strahd von Verovich uh, and the Barovia and whatnot. And it really started off as like a, a small adventure setting. Um, and it bloomed into a set, uh, bloomed into a full setting later on. So what we're really talking about is is that Raven had a different feel than the rest of D and D, and that kind of brings us sort of into our topic for today. Um, and that's really talking about what is the role and what is the use of what is not the role, not the use, but what are we doing? What are we talking about? Is is horror? The different types of horror in D and D, and specifically how does that apply to Eberron? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, what is horror? Well, you know, in a game sense, what is it? I think before we we jump into the the broader point, I'd I'd love to speak to just Ravenloft uh, for a moment more and just say so. Part of the point of Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is to introduce the setting of Ravenloft, which is this concept more broadly of the domains of dread that. Uh, you have these people, dark lords, who have been sort of ca- pulled into the mists, into these domains that are sort of oriented around a particular trapped uh, dark lord who is essentially being tortured. And part of the point of it is while Ravenloft is technically a setting, it's sort of an interstitial setting. The whole idea of it is you can wander into the mists from anywhere. And so one of the perfect first questions of sort of how do you how do you do horror in Eberron is you know one of the points is you can use Ravenloft material exactly as it is written. You can have players wandering through the mists and just find themselves in Barovia and that's fine. And it doesn't matter that Barovia isn't from Eberron. It's the mists connect everything. 
Uh, so that is one possibility for her is just use Ravenloft, and that's fine. Uh, another possibility, if you don't want to mix your chocolate and your peanut butter, if you don't like the idea of the multiverse and you don't want to have Barovia that no one's ever heard of, uh, is something that we built into exploring Eberron with the idea of Mabar, the Eternal Night, as a plane that basically consumes pieces of other planes. And we had Ravenloft partially in mind with that, that this is a, a place where Mabar is the source of undead. It is the plane of essentially despair and the end of all things. And it grabs other uh, pieces of other planes and essentially slowly drains all the life out of and hope out of them. Uh, and so you can, again use Ravenloft sort of as it exists, but say that the dark powers are the dark powers of Mabar, that the domains are in what are called the hinterlands of Mabar being slowly consumed. And so that's a way to use many of the same concepts. If you were to do that, then you want to say, oh, Barovia was actually a province in Karnath and Strahd was a Karnathi warlord 800 years ago. And, you know, you can do that kind of adaptation and keep it all within Eberron without changing anything. Uh, and that is the approach that, you know, we are taking with Dread Metro, which we'll talk about a little later. But is that point of you could use it either way as just a general domain of Dread that can connect to anywhere or specifically as a plane assumed by Mabar. Um, but having just gotten that out of the way, it does come back to the, the main question of, all of that is a way to tell horror stories in uh, in Eberron or in Dungeons and Dragons. And what is horror uh, in in gaming? So, uh, Imogen and Wayne, how would you describe horror? Horror is when Keith says, "Hmm." Mm, that is true. <laughs> I think and horror you know is. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't know. Horror is a tricky one. I think because as a genre finding horror that works is extremely personal mm -hmm. um, because I mean, I guess sort of it's, it's, it's implied that the main driver between any, any, in any kind of horror is fear, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you're targeting different aspects of fear, different aspects of humanity and poking them until they hurt in a good way, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I have to admit, I don't have a lot of experience with running horror at mm -hmm. tables, you know. So, so um, part of it's fascinating reading about this stuff in, in Van Richten's Guide um, and in Ravenloft more generally, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's 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 targeting fears um, in a controlled environment, so that you know you you can. It's like a roller coaster, but for emotions, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Oh, emotional roller coaster. That's already a thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're, you're looking at fear of specific concepts, fear of the unknown, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the things you don't know. Um, so when you're bringing that to your table, um, you're thinking about, well, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm jumping a bit ahead on our, no, <laughs> our idea, but you have to think about um, how you can target fear of players and how you can target separately fears of characters. And that can be a thing for a dungeon master and uh, 
a player to to think about. Wayne? I mean, this is one of those things that <clears throat> maybe fundamentally people have certain fears. And this is we're talking about human psychology, which mm-hmm. is I'm not an expert in this. <laughs> but when you're talking about a role-playing game, there is a level of immersion that we all experience playing an RPG, playing D&D. But there's also a level of removal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's a level of this has happened to my character, mm-hmm. right? So unless the DM is going to run after players with a chainsaw, there's a certain <laughs> level of fear that you are not going to reach on the character level. Now, that's not to say this is not possible. I mean, if you look at the the, the role-playing game Dread, mm-hmm. <clears throat> for those who don't know, um, you know, Dread is, is basically your character gets stuck in a horrible situation and is trying to escape. That's the, that's the premise. The game mechanics are done using a, a Jenga tower. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do something, you've got to pull a tile from the Jenga tower. And what, it, what that's meant to do is create tension, um, maybe not fear, anxiety, mm. those kind of things, as the tower gets more and more difficult. So that is the way that game creates fear and tension in the players and then obviously you can always you have stuff like mood lighting and, and certain things there's there's a lot of actually good actual plays of dread um but yeah i mean part of that gamification of it is you're making the players afraid mm-hmm. so when i use the word characters and players here so that's I, i've always thought that was hey, that's pretty cool mm-hmm. um i'm never afraid when i'm playing um jenga but <laughs> to use that as an attention point and to then add and then layer on, uh, you know, fear and, and horror and, and dread into that is pretty cool, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously, the mechanic of like in dread, there's a mechanic where basically it says you want to do something. Well, by the way, if the tower falls over, your character mm-hmm. dies, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you can purposely knock over the tower to do something heroic or have something succeed, then die. So doing it purposely. So it's it's a very it's it's an interesting topic, but then. What that really is saying is that you're not making the character afraid; you're making the player afraid. Right. And you know, we in Van Richten's there's there's content warnings for you know there's content warnings, but there's also the content warning is because that might trigger the player, not the character. Right. The character is a character, but it might trigger the player. Um, and so, what they're they're acknowledging really, I, I, what I feel is what they're acknowledging is. There's a point in horror, there's a point in fear or tension or anxiety where the player is going to get, is going to be wrapped up. And, and this is one of the things I jump on immediately is, is this sort of ties to both of your points of what is horror? You know, horror is something that evokes a visceral reaction. Uh, horror, you know, and the point is we want it to do it in a good way. We want it to, uh, but then we're excited. You know, that was, that was a, you know, tension. That was good. Uh, but part of that whole point, which Van Richten's talks about, uh, but that you're absolutely right about, Wayne, is that that has to be something you know the players want to experience. That, mm-hmm. you know, you have to make sure that we all agree this is the kind of thing we want because you are ultimately dealing with the player reaction. And, uh, and so that's a very important thing. But Van Richten's does go into that. And it's just important as something to keep in mind. Um, a couple of things that 
that I would jump into. First, in talking about horror, uh, you have two very concrete examples of different styles of horror, which are the jump scare and bomb theory. And Mm -hmm. jump scare is the thing that comes out of nowhere and triggers a big burst of adrenaline because, you know, we were just walking down a hallway and "Ah!" that thing just happened. And it is a surprise. (laughs) And part of of why it, you know, is we may have tension, but oh, it comes out of nowhere and that that triggers that sudden reaction. The difference is bomb theory, which is uh, one of Hitchcock's concepts of the tension of saying we show you someone set a bomb under a table about to go off in 15 minutes. And then we go to the people who don't know it's there. And the point is, it is essentially the point of we, the viewers know exactly what's coming, but we're terrified because the characters don't. And that that suspense is Mm -hmm. coming because, oh, my God, they don't know. Are they going to do anything? Are they going to do anything? And so basically those are two very different kinds of fears of the fear coming out of nowhere that you didn't see coming. And it is scary because it shocks you. And the fear of I know what's coming, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to stop it in time. You know, and so it's it's tension and versus surprise. And both of those are valuable tools in horror. Uh, it's just that balance of, of which of those kind of scares are you trying to get. Um, and I will say, you know, I, I know people who actually will like really work off one of those and hate the other, like hate suspense <laughs> because they don't like that living, living on the edge. Um, I will say a couple other things about D&D specifically, and one of the things is that I made a game called Phoenix Dawn Command, which is actually pretty much a survival horror fantasy, you know, dark fantasy game. And one of the things about that is it's specifically designed to handle that because in Phoenix, players can die. Like, that's not the end of the story. And that's one of the tricky things about horror in D&D is, first off, we already all come to the table knowing that our characters could die. You know, we're we're a bunch of combat statistics. That's what characters are. The idea that an orc hits me and does six hit points of damage is not frightening. I don't want my character to die, but it's just numbers. You know, I, I know that he could if he gets a critical hit on me. And so part of that is it's good for horror to find things for players to lose aside from hit points. Because just threatening the character with death is not really that scary because it happens to us every time we get into combat. Mm. And that can be something, and this is ideally something that the players are part of in discussing what do we have to lose, whether it's either because we're building something together. So in the threshold game I've been running, as long as once people get to know the NPCs, once people get to like the crown, because we've been drinking there all this time, that suddenly becomes a thing that can be threatened And the loss of that may be more visceral than the loss of my character, because I know my character could be raised from the dead. And so part of it is is both finding, but also encouraging working with the players to figure out what are the things they are afraid of losing. And this, I think, comes back to, um, Wayne, your point earlier of we understand player fear. The question is, you have to work with the player to say, but what is your character fear? You know, what are the things that uh, that actually do worry you? Is it reputation? Is it family? 
Is it uh, something else? And, uh, and that once you have those, that is a strength towards a horror campaign of figuring out the things you can threaten that become that bomb under the table. I'm, I know my character might die anytime I get into a fight, but I didn't realize that uh, I might shame my dragon marked house or, you know, whatever it is. And that scares me actually a little more because that's bigger than me. Well, I mean, that's really what we're talking about is, is talking about, there's part of it is the unknown, mm-hmm. the unexpected. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the bar, you're talking about the jump scare. Let's just yeah. go there for a sec. I will bet you guys that when you, uh, as your DM or as a player, and the first time that someone gets hit in the party, um, and it's not like it's a large amount of damage. Mm-hmm. So think about last time, you know, your 40 hit point per your 40 hit point character got smacked with like 25 points of damage. You're, you're scared because it's a, it's unknown. It's unexpected. It's a shock, right? So I'm not saying that that's the best example, but I'm saying that in terms of making the experience, like Keith was saying, making the experience very visceral for the, the player, because it makes, there, there's a reason there's a, you know, when we talk about trying to make, you know, when we talk about trying to make a, a campaign or, or our game really, really impact someone, it's all about stakes, mm-hmm. right? And that's exactly what Keith just said is it's all about the stakes for the character. And if there's enough buy-in from the player, the character stakes are going to make sense, right? There's a, a sister or a brother or a, a family member that could be injured or harmed or whatnot, right? You know, the, the old joke when you play d and like first, second edition is you have no living relatives. You have nothing to threaten, right? Right. <laughs> You know, all they all can all they can do is threaten threaten you you or threaten your your, your money, right? <laughs> and, the, and the money the money and the treasures more more important, right? So, but a but a point on that also is all too often that comes across as when I the DM say, "Tell me about your family." You're like, "So you can mess with them, right?" And like <laughs> that, that, why would I ever do that? The important thing again is, as we said before, if you're doing horror, you need to have player buy-in on that. We need to all agree we want a horror campaign. And if we want a horror campaign, you want to be scared. And so that's where when I ask you, what do you have to lose? What frightens your character? I'm giving you the chance to, to basically tell me what kind of scare do you want? So don't think of it as, oh, I'm giving the DM a weapon. Think of it as if this was a horror movie, what would I want? To, you know, what am I willing? What are the poker chips I'm going to put on the table? Because again, what we're ultimately doing is creating a story together. And with horror specifically, you've got to have that. You got to know what the players want to be at risk. I think that's a really important point about how much more than, and than most genres, building a good horror game is a collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, quite different to some of you know eberron if we come back to talking about eberron generally versus even lost eberron um you know if you're targeting sort of pulp or noir genres you can afford to be a bit more dm driven in 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 that kind of Mm -hmm. sphere and obviously it's more fun when it is collaborative but um horror specifically needs well you you said the magic words it was player buy-in um mm-hmm. and you need 
the player to tell you what they want um, rather than and, try to tell the players what they're scared of. And, and that's, a, that's a specific sort of thing that you can do in session zero and yeah. you should do in session zero is talk about, again, triggers, uh, you know, and, and by asking you what was your character afraid of, that's giving you a chance to essentially say what you are not afraid of and do not want <laughs> this to be about. It is not about my family. Thank you. Mm. Um, but it is also something as a DM that you can do during play itself. When the players go into the heart of the temple of Dern the Corruptor, and you know that they are creeping the adventures, and I said players, but when the adventures, adventurers, you know, go down and uh, find the, the hideous altar in the Palace of Sinew, and you can hear things whispering in the back of your mind, I might ask players. Okay, Joe, what is it you hear? You know, their voices whispering to you. What do they say? Uh, or one of the things I've said before, if I have the zombie horde and you get into this small Carnathy village and you see a bunch of zombies coming out and you see one of them who's obviously a butcher missing his arm, you see an old lady who uh, is sort of dragging herself by her hands. What else? Uh, tell me about another one of the zombies that you see. And again, if I ask you, some players are not going to like that. They're just going to be like, I don't know. And you're like, fine, move on. But if players are engaged, giving them a chance to set a bit of that scene, because what I'm saying is I don't want to just tell you this is a zombie. It's got 10 hit points. I want you to stop and think that used to be a villager. Who was it? You know, mm -hmm. and by asking those sort of questions, it becomes less you just telling them and more you creating the scene together. And the thing is, that's good anywhere. But in horror, it comes back to that point that I don't know what is frightening to you. And so more, you know, and it's a balance because also it's the jump scare. People want to be surprised. You know, it's not a surprise if I stop and say, now tell me what jumps out of the, the closet at you. But there is certainly room for you to add. So I'll, I'll just add one other tiny example from actually Phoenix, where I ran a game where I basically said people were going through the cursed wood, they find the desecrated grove at the center, they find the idol, and I said it is clearly the idol of uh, the forest guardian spirit, but you see that its lips have been shown, sewn shut and that that's not normal. But there's one other detail that really creeps you out. Bob, what's that? Um, and the point is, I didn't just ask Bob to describe the scene. I said a bunch of concrete facts. I said, this is a druidic idol. I said, it's got the creepy lips shown shut, but I gave him that chance to say, tell me something else. And he might've said, it's covered with spiders. He might've said, as someone did in one of the games I in, it doesn't have any eyes. The eyes are missing, you know? And so in that particular example, I then had all the, the things that were possessed by this evil spirit actually gouge out their eyes, which was a creepy ongoing part because Bob did, <laughs> Bob did the thing with eyes and it was creepy. Um, but my point is if he'd said spiders, I would have had spiders all over the forest and we would have things. And so it's that point of as game master, you don't have to let the players define the whole story but it can help to ask them to define a couple of the little trappings because they know what they really find creepy. <laughs> I think uh, there was a game, actually, Imogen is in that game. There was a game I was uh, 
I was running, and um, they ran up against the something mm-hmm. which I'm not gonna say, but uh, pointless. <laughs> I, I did I did go through and I asked each player like, "What are you most afraid of?" And I tried to integrate that mm-hmm. in there, um, and adding certain things that I know are. And one of the things is we're talking about we're talking when we're talking about fear and horror. We're not just talking about the jump scare. We're talking about things that are disturbing, right? Right. Yeah. You, you know, if you ever watched like like I, I don't I don't really scare very easily, so it's, it's hard <laughs> for me to do that. But I'm trying to think of things that are disturbing. So in Keith's example, you know, this this little doll, this little idol oh, has yes. its mouth sewn shut. It's smiling, right? And <laughs> right. That, and I don't, I don't know. That, I don't know if that's fearful. I don't right. know if that's going to scare anybody. Like I, I know people are afraid of clowns, so I guess that's. A, <laughs> but it's trying, trying to trying to add these elements is very difficult because number one, you're drawing from your own fears, which someone else may not be afraid of. You know, I I I'm pretty sure I have a phobia. I have a like I have an unnatural phobia of cut broken glass, but I can't articulate that to someone else. I just know what I feel when it, when that happens, right? So the other thing is is that I that it's the two things. Number one, what 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 are the, some of those questions? Is that we're really trying to pull the immersion in? Like right. you can't scare someone if they're they're at a a hundred level, one thousand level view of the game, yeah. right? You know, and obviously that's a lot harder as well with with Zoom and 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 remote work because you're you're away you're literally away from every other person. Um, and I, I've had people tell me that is that that's just a little bit harder. Yes, you can set the mood, you can put more music, you can put a little more stuff in there, uh, but at the end of the day, they're sitting in their own room with the lights on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. Those questions where it draws the immersion, it draws the play, draws the players deeper into the game. Um. And using that opportunity to not use anything to break that immersion is 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 masterful D and D. The second thing is pacing, and we learn a lot about this from filmmakers. Like I, I like I like I like listening to like director commentary tracks and and behind the scenes stuff. Like how does a director do this? And um, if you've ever read uh, Robin Law's um, Hamlet's Hit Points, if you apply that to the fear and to fear. You and you talk to any horror director, or you've listened to any horror director's video uh, uh, interview. It's always about that pacing. Yes, there's music and story, and there's a jump scare, or whatever. But you cannot you you cannot keep ratcheting up the tension. You have to relieve it in order to go up and down, and up and down, and, and hit them at different points. Now, I'm not a I'm not a master storyteller. I'm not a master director, um, but I know well enough that to to use music or whatever to hit a certain note, and you you know if you're watching a horror movie that something's going to jump out or something's going to happen when the music gets to that point, but they don't start off you know at that note trying to scare you right away. Mm-hmm. I uh, I definitely want to pick up on um, what you said before, just because it's it's exactly right about the the idol is that perfect example of the one person saying oh its eyes have been gouged out and the other person saying it's smiling is again, both of those are frightening, but in completely different ways. And that's that question of, oh, smiling, it's not like it's not like a gross body horror thing, but it's just, whoa, you know, why is it smiling? <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, again, that's exactly that kind of moment of saying as a DM, I need to know which of those paths the players are on. And that's the perfect, like, oh, okay, that's where we're going. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I like about those sort of moments. One of the things I want to, to add, too, is to say that another aspect of fear of the unknown is familiar things behaving in unfamiliar ways things not working the way you expect them to. And this is another point that requires player buy-in because the players have to understand that D&D is a big book of rules. But again, it is always the case that the player, that the DM gets to decide how to apply the rules, but even more so in a horror game. You have to understand that just because your thing happens, it might not work the way you're used to. But pulling back from that and not even talking about sort of changing abilities or not having things be reliable, you can just add odd things that we don't know what they mean. So for example, I'm fighting a Rakshasa. It hits me and I take some damage. It hits me and I get a disease. Oh, that's bad. You know, but that's still mechanical. But what if it hits me uh, and we chase it away, it teleports away after we get fight. And the DM mentions that, by the way, I don't have a shadow anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it doesn't have any mechanical effects. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not handicapped, but what does it mean? And what if the next morning it's back, but someone else is pretty darn sure it just moved and I didn't <laughs> it didn't match me? Is that kind of element is the point is D is something that is so broken down into mechanical details, conditions, things like this, that throwing in a thing that is none of those can add that sort of, is my shadow going to try and strangle me in my sleep? Or is it just, is that just a thing that happened for a day? It's perfectly fine. It's just not your shadow. Exactly. And so, so those sorts of things, you know, sort of think about, are there things you can do that, again, don't, hit the mechanics but make people say why um or if you do say things like it's the you know go to the ring and say oh you've just discovered that anyone who you know this this magical ring has little wording on the inside that says oh by the way anyone who touches this ring is going to die in four days and okay we've stated that this isn't a saving throw this isn't a thing by the way you're going to die in four days unless you can find some way what, it, what do we need to do? How do we break the curse? What is it? And the point, again, being that that's the bomb scare. That's mm-hmm. the I am telling you, you have four days to solve this problem. But I'm also telling you, and if you can't, it's just going to happen. This isn't, you can't make the saving throw. You can't use guidance. You are just going to die in four days. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah. Jeff, I was going to say, yeah, it, it's like you're playing with the system very specifically there. Um, by breaking it Um, in the sense that when you're in D&D, players may be coming to the table more so than many other role-playing games, expecting that mechanical framework so that when you break it, you know, it introduces that element of anxiety in there. Um, You know, if if this doesn't work within the rules, what else might break? And um, yeah, yeah. And an interesting thing I'll just add is looking to Van Richten's uh, that it introduces the concept of dark gifts. And we may talk about those a little more uh, in the future. But one of the things they do with dark gifts is essentially add a bad thing that happens when you roll a one. They add a bad consequence to a fumble. And the whole idea of that is dread. 
it's the dread mechanic of, well, now when I roll the die, if I roll the one, this bad thing's going to happen. And I know what that is. So, I mean, even that is a kind of thing you could potentially do is say, oh, you've been bitten by a zombie. Well, anytime you roll the one, you're going to get worse. You know, essentially, we're going to say that you have a level of zombie exhaustion. And when you hit six, uh, it's going to go <laughs> off and it's going to hit, you know, going to lose a level every time you roll the one. You don't know how to cure it. So, you know, that is a way to add something very mechanical. And the player knows, ah, I don't want to roll the die. I might roll the one, you know, uh, while still not not doing anything. But Wayne, you would have. Well, actually, it's funny because we, we talked about we talked about this very situation when before we did uh, Everon Confidential. Yeah. And Keith and I had a discussion of the secrets because remember, Icewind Dale was supposed to be a, it's, it's a horror adventure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but we were saying the secrets don't invoke horror. They don't invoke fear. And, you know, one of the, literally one of the things that we were talking about was I have this secret and if I don't pass it on to somebody or if I don't kill somebody or I'll kill a party member, I think that was one of the examples we were, we were throwing back and forth. Something bad happens. Now you actually have some fear. Now you actually have some anxiety about this. Now, and I, I understand, and let me, let me clarify, I don't want people to have anxiety. But in terms of a game context, to have that anxiousness, to have that fear um, is, as a, as a DM, there's a mechan- that's the mechanical thing I'm giving you that's going to cause you some consternation, and- right? So in, in terms of those secrets and, and whatnot, you know, kind of even going back, you know, we're talking about a year, you know, something that came out a year ago, uh, almost a year ago, um, is just, it's, it's interesting, right? And it's not an element, it's, and to me, that wasn't thinking of an element of horror, um, really didn't think about it, but that was an element of stakes as an element of, of anxiety, as an element of, of just, you know, tying stuff, tying stuff in that would affect other people. And I think the thing with with the Raven I mean, with the um, press main secrets is part of the point of some of them are sort of either inconsequential or benevolent. You know, I'm a drizzed fanboy and I carry a, a green square of felt, felt that might be from his cloak. Uh, there's nothing scary or any sort of reason to hold that secret. Where you could generate some fear from it is just by making sure everybody knows everybody has a secret. And it could be bad, which is to say, coming back to, frankly, you know, are you a werewolf or games like that? We know someone in the party is a werewolf, you know, uh, but we don't know who. And if your secret is that you're a fanboy, then it's not you. (laughs) So it might be someone else. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we could go into a whole thing about that, but it is back to that point of it's it's very much. I, I recommend always thinking about the, the bomb scare versus the jump scare of the, are you trying to go with fear generated by the unexpected or can you go with that point of what's of what frightens us is we know everyone in the party has a secret and I don't know what they are yet. So <laughs> until I do, they could be that I need to eat someone's brain every fortnight. Um uh, yeah. So I mean, let's let's dive a little more into because I, I believe you're listening to us because we generally talk about everyone. That's very true. So why don't we dive, <laughs> let's dive a little bit more specifically into um, how does this how does this book or 
Mm-hmm. How does horror affect Eberron, and and where to use it, or, or maybe some examples on how how we would use it um, in our Eberron games, or if you're just setting up a, a, a game you want a, a horror game yeah. in Eberron. What, well, what, is think, it, what does it look like? I think we can start on that point if you uh, don't mind by actually sort of looking at two concrete ones that we do have. Of yeah. you know, obviously there is in Van Richten's guide. Uh, they have the idea of 1313. Uh, there is just a, it's a very small thing. There is just a section that is basically other domains. Uh, but it is the idea of this magical haunted train. Um, and that is something I'm trying to see if I can pull it up really quick. There we go. Uh, Cause I haven't even actually, yeah, I mean, it's basically like, it's just a paragraph um, but it is basically a lightning rail, a haunted lightning rail that is sort of traveling endlessly through the mist. And to me, it really reminds me of, say, Snowpiercer. And mm-hmm. part of what you're talking about there is, and the point is, it's a haunted lightning rail, but you could also just do a horror story set on a lightning rail. Uh, because part of the point of it is isolation. You know, we can't get off of it. It's moving too fast. It's, you know, doing whatever. It's that you're trapped in a isolated space where you don't have access to resources, uh, where a dangerous force, if there is an opponent that is too powerful for you to face head on, what do you do? Because you can't get off the train, you know? So like part of the, the fear of that factor is the, the limited control of environment, limited resources, limited places to go. Yeah, um, and I think um, in, the, in that one specifically, there's this this idea behind it. Um, you know, it, it is a Ravenloft dread domain, so it has a Dark Lord. But in the 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 Sea of Thirteen Thirteen train, the Dark Lord is an unknown, a sort of mm-hmm. a mysterious passenger who is responsible for the the horrors inflicted on everyone trapped on this train. But, you know, don't. you don't know who they are. And it comes back to what you were saying about secrets again and, and how you can leverage that um, from a player and a DM side is there's a, a, a sort of, there's fun in trying to figure that out before everyone dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And and looking to the other you know, domain of dread that we have, you know, is uh, without giving too much away, it's in the title, uh, Dread Metro, uh, which is in developing a domain of dread for Eberron. Uh, we played with the idea of saying, well, let's take Metro, the capital of Seer, uh, and say that on the, the day of mourning, uh, when uh, the Mornland was, you know, when Seer was destroyed and the Mornland was created, what if Metrol actually was in that moment transported to whether it's Mabar or uh, the domain of domains of dread? But nonetheless, the mists wash over the city. From those mists emerge a massive Karnathi army uh, of the dead lay siege to the city. Um and that ever since they have been cut off, isolated, and fighting against an implacable foe. And part of what we are trying to explore there, 
without, again, going into too much detail. We don't want to spoil too much, but it is the combination of, on the (laughs) one hand, you have an army of the dead at the walls, a literal existential threat that is trying to destroy you all. And on the other hand, you have what happens within the walls as people try to survive over the course of a long extended siege. And that those are themselves two separate sorts of horror that you can explore. Are you fighting the dead or are you dealing with the secret police? And are you uh, trying to figure out how to uh, evade the Kenneth corpse collectors and sort of what will people do <laughs> when uh, they, they lack resources and such? Uh, either of you want to add to that? Um, just as to, to jump in a little bit here, um, when we first got some information about um, when we first got some information about the Ravenloft book, um, you know, someone was like, "Oh, this is very much like this other domain of dread." Um, let's be clear: this is a Karnathi force, so right. these are undead soldiers right. um, with intelligence. Right. Um, they are not mindless. They are literally laying siege to the city every night and then disappearing into the mists as the Dread Lord is tortured night and night again and to relive her suffering of her people dying. The reason she's here, though, and the, what she's doing, the reason why Keith's talking about corpse collectors and, and whatnot is the question, the question we posed at creating this was what would you do as a ruler, quote unquote dreadlord, what would you do to win mm-hmm. against an enemy that you have no idea? You can't enter the mists. Right. You know, that's one of the things that for dreadlords and, and everything else, you can't enter the mists. So what do you do? How do you win? Mm-hmm. And what would you sacrifice and what would you give up? And who would you sacrifice in order to win? in order to not survive. And this is a survival game for anybody but her. Right. But for her, how do I win? And do I, what do I need to, who needs to, who needs to die? Who needs to, what, what do the citizens need to sacrifice in the name of victory? And I, I completely uh, agree with that. And, and it is, I think, the, the key point of uh, the other domain in question, you know, Falconovia is a domain that's dealing essentially with the zombie apocalypse. But again, that's a very different overall flavor. That's a more sort of walking dead, how do we survive in this world full of random zombies? And as Wayne said, with Dread Metro, we are dealing, this is not just a random mindless zombie horde. This is an undead army. And that is one of the secondary aspects of both Eberron in general and Dread Metro is essentially arcane industry. And it is that point of how do we, how do we use the powers that we have? And in the case of Metro, how do we take the things we know already? House Kenneth, you know, House Kenneth, the Warforged, House Galanda, you know, what will we do with those if we had if, to turn to them to survive. And so again, it is just on a quick glance of, oh, it's they're, they're fighting zombies. It's very different from, uh, from Falconovia. Um, do we want to talk a little about uh, other? So, I mean, basically 
part of the point is th- that's designed, you know, both uh, Sierra 1313 is from the Ravenloft book. Dread Metrol is designed to play with the core ideas of Ravenloft, of the mists, of dra- Dark Lords. Uh, but you don't need any of that to tell a horror story. In uh, in Eberron, and Eberron is specifically has basic elements that were from the beginning put in there to tell horror stories. Um, you know, for example, the Dalkir. And one of the things about it is that Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft identifies a number of distinct sort of genres of horror. And uh, do we want to take a moment to sort of talk about how we would? Uh, apply those to Eberron? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, if there's a... I think one of the the things about... Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. I think a a DM who wants to run a horror game uh, is is a twofold. One, there's a particular horror that they'd like to explore, Mm -hmm. you know? And number two, they have a group that is willing to explore this kind of story with them. And I think being able to identify these different words. And I know I'm not saying you have to play one mix and match, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but having that group, but understanding what, um, what some of these things are and maybe some, maybe an idea of how people might react to them. Mm-hmm. It's probably a really good idea. And to know where sort of where the things where I can mix and match in, in Eberron, I think it's, it's, it would be quite useful actually in, in general. I'm sure people could sort of think of it, um, but I'm sure we have our own takes <laughs> on it as well. Absolutely. So, uh, go on. I, well, I was just going to kick off, you know, if we, if yeah, we start thinking about genres, um, Van Richten's guide starts with body horror as the first mm-hmm. one. So targeting your players and your player characters' fears about form, I guess, essentially about, about bad things happening to their bodies, about mm-hmm. alien configurations you know it's like stuff you were talking about earlier where you you find things without eyes or eyes being gouged out um so the 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 sort of the first immediate um eberron thing that comes to mind there is the delkia of course Mm -hmm. the the, the Mm -hmm. flesh crafters there who you know, famously consider sort of flesh as an art form with which they express themselves. Um, And they consider the people of Eberron to be their canvas. You know, they Mm -hmm. they take, um, they take the, well, you get like the Dolgrims and the Dolgaunts, some of the classic examples of their minions who are, uh, goblins and hobgoblins and so on that have been taken and changed into something monstrous. Um, so, of course, you can apply that to the modern side of the campaign setting as well as, you know, the ancient history where, you know, if the Delkia continue to, to assert their influence on the material plane, can they inflict those same kind of transformations on, on NPCs and PCs? And I think the the Dalkir sort of bridge a line between body horror and, uh, you know, in the next category is cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. And the, the point of the Dalkir is twofold, is first, you deal very much with the threat of transformation and of familiar things made unfamiliar, 
like the Dolgrims, where it's two goblins jammed together. And it's like, Ugh, just why do they do that? Uh, and so on the one hand, you've got that. You have the symbionts where, you know, I have a living weapon attached to my tongue. You know, if I've got a tongue worm, this kind of thing. <laughs> you're just like, yeah. Um, and so on the one hand, you have just the immediate visceral, ugh, you know, worms, you know, that guy has a poison stinger on his tongue. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the sort of deeper bomb scare, if you will, of the people who are actually slowly being transformed, who are choosing to be transformed, the cultist who wakes up and has an eye on their hand and they see things through the eye that, you know, other people can't see. Um, so on the one hand, the physical aspect is part of it. But the other thing that is uh, often a factor with the Dalkir is how alien they are that we don't understand them. We don't know why they decide to do the things they do. And that means we don't know what they're going to do next. Uh, I will say a movie that I feel is relatively recent that sort of does actually a good job with some of these things is the movie Annihilation. Uh, yes. And if you haven't seen it, it's a great sort of Dalkir example of it both combines some very creepy flesh warping type stuff, but with also part of the horror of it is why is this happening? What are they trying to accomplish? And that to me is a very big difference between the Dalkir and the overlords of Sol You know, some of the overlords are work well with horror. Some don't. Sol Katesh uh, is a actually pretty good horror. You take the court of shadows, her cultists who have their whole creepy secret society of wizards and warlocks that can very much be played with a sort of gothic horror uh, element but part of the point is when it comes down to it, we sort of know what the overlords want. We know that they want to escape. And if they do, it is a cosmic threat. It will throw the world into darkness. Uh, but we still understand that, oh, they are in prison. They want to be freed and, uh, and they will do these bad things. Whereas part of the, the sort of horror of the Dalkir is... We don't even know if they want to be freed and why don't they want to be freed. Um, and, and that is specifically, I've sort of bridged the gap into the next thing. That is, that is the point of one of the things of cosmic horror, uh, you know, that Van Richten's calls out is that idea that, you know, there is no good or evil, you know, no law or chaos. There's no, we can't apply a morality to this. It's yeah, happening. I, mean, I think one of the things about cosmic horror, even though we, we label, you know, Lovecraftian things as evil. It's just alien. And I mean that in the complete, we, you know, it's hard to imagine what something so alien that we can't comprehend it would be. Um, but that's one of the things that I, I feel that Dalkir make a better cosmic, a cosmic horror thing than, let's say, the the quarry or whatever. Sure. I mean, you know I, or what even the quarry like the wants. You yeah, know? we we know what we want. We we know that they are you know basically you know fear and and whatever spirits. That that's one of those things. that's there, you know, that's the difference between Dalcor, which is not represented in D and D in any particular way specifically, um, and something like the Dalkir, which is our representation of the far realms, right? Um, sort of thing, right? And and I um, 
I think that's the the sort of line between dark fantasy and cosmic horror by their terms is that the yeah. overlords and for that matter, the quarry are very dark fantasy. They are nightmare spirits that will torment you in your dreams and that can actually con- you know, consume your spirit and take over your body from <laughs> your dreams. Uh, but we know what they want to do. They want to conquer the world. They want to do it to save their, their selves. Uh, whereas Dalkir fill the cosmic horror role in that sense again, because we don't yeah. know what they're going to do. And that means in part, we don't know what they're going to do next, that the unpredictability yeah. is part of the horror of them. I'm always reminded of to try to understand cosmic horror or try to understand Cthulhu was basically um, someone said the ant example. Yeah. So basically let's say you walked out of outside of your house yep. and your house was encircled by ants mm-hmm. very organizedly, and they were all chanting. <laughs> they were chanting your name. Mm-hmm. You would be like, huh, that's really strange, but okay. And they would start bringing offerings to you, <laughs> and they would start doing other things. Um, those kind of things would be, that'd be pretty, that'd be pretty hilarious to you. But imagine that on that scale. Like, that's what, what a, a cosmic court, like, they can't understand you, and they, they basically say, we've encircled your house and we've lined it with salt. <laughs> you have to do what we say now. And you're like, it's just salt. But hey, I'm going to humor you and be like, okay, what do you want? Uh, we want you to destroy that anthill over there. Well, that doesn't cost you anything. You're going to walk over, you kick the anthill over. They're like, hail Cthulhu, hail Cthulhu, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, this happens a couple times and you get, you're like, okay, this is getting a little annoying now, right? And finally, one of them, you know, the one, one goes, you know what? Uh, I've fallen in love with this girl. This one little answer. I follow this girl. I want you to make her love me. And you go, okay, enough is enough. And you destroy the rest of the ant colony. And it's just you and her, her and you now. And you're like, okay. And the ant goes, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> I, I remember reading this. I, I thought it was hilarious. But I, I, because we can't, we can't imagine something so alien. I thought that was an amazing example of what is this? Co- what's what? What would be cosmic horror? how would you think as a cosmic horror or cosmic entity? I I just want to actually have, I'm going to have to run a campaign now where one of my players wakes up and there's a whole bunch of ants around their bed (laughs) chanting their name. Uh, Just because. Uh, Getting back to to Eberron uh, for a moment. Remember Eberron? Uh, So so we mentioned getting her. The the Dalk here are just the the sort of top of the line for, frankly, you know, to me, both body horror and cosmic horror. Uh, But another powerful force for uh, both of these things, to a certain degree, in Eberron, is the Mornland and the Morning. And part of it, again, is it is an inexplicable force that has taken the familiar and transformed it in horrible ways. So first you have the body horror element, because very much in exploring the Mornland, one of the things you can do is explore how did it change things? What, you know, you can find things again that what's horrible about, you know, some of these creatures is not just that they are horrific in form because there's tons of horrible monsters in D&D, but it's that they didn't used to be that this is a thing made of three innocent people. And now it's a crazy triple armed, you know, uh, massive Zorn like creature. And so 
you don't have to explore that with the Mornland, but that is part of the potential of the Mornland. Exploring the Mornland or the effects of the morning is this point of we don't know why it happened, and yet it transformed people in horrible, horrific ways. It stole lives. If you're going through the Mornland, you are finding you know depopulated villages. You're finding remnants of things that people left behind. And there's a lot of room for body horror, cosmic horror, even dark fantasy, you know, in there. So if we, well, you mentioned dark fantasy, oh, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say then, you know, if, if those two that, you know, body horror, cosmic horror, that tend to start out quite big. So if we bring the genre down to, to, to the smaller stuff, and that's when you, you start to get to, some of the other aspects of dark fantasy and mm-hmm. into the sort of the folk horror side of things as well. Um, so I guess it, 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 in Eberron, if we, if we leave behind the Delk here, we're, to, we're talking about the Delk here. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can you um, evoke from, from Eberron to, to target folk horror? And I think one of the best examples of that is the sort of, fairy tales and the hags and the daughters of Sorakel. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, the daughters, they're, 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 they're the quintessential, here is a, a you know, the, the, the fairy tales that you've grown up telling in your Eldin and your um, Dromish villages for, for decades or hundreds of years, and they've stepped out of fairy tale and they're real. And mm-hmm. they're there and they're changing the world. Um, so I don't know. I think that to me, you know, if, if you want to, to set a game in, say, Western Ondere or in the Eldine Reaches mm-hmm. or in the Baish Mountains or something, then that's the easiest and most obvious place to me to, to, to do that. And I think a, a critical point on there, too, I completely agree. Uh, and I think a part of that is also understanding that that in talking about folk horror, part of the idea of it is isolation and superstition. Mm-hmm. That it's not simply about horror based on folk tales. It's about that idea of, you know, the wicker man, of the witch, of uh, you are in a place that is isolated from the world where we don't know if these superstitions are real or not. That uh, that people have these superstitions that to us are crazy, but are they crazy? And so I would also call out the Shadow Marches is very yes. much a place for folk horror. And that's the difference with the Dalkir. Of the Dalkir on a grand level, with their armies of Dolgaunts and Dolgrims, and they're transforming things, that's cosmic horror. On the other hand, the gibbering cult, who uh, people just go missing in the village until you eventually discover that the family has a gibbering mouther down in their basement that they think <laughs> is their grandmother, uh, yes. that they're feeding people yeah. to. That's a folk horror story. Mm. Uh, because again, the point is, it's not about, we don't care about the Dalkir on their grand scale changing the world. We care about this creepy tradition that every year, three people get fed to the gibbering mouther in the basement. Yeah. Well, you, well, basically, think about it as cautionary tales. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I basically, I, I've, I've heard that said before. Is that you know, folk stories 
and whatnot are cautionary tales. Mm-hmm. A little girl goes missing in the woods. Mm-hmm. You tell a um, you tell a cautionary tale that says, you know, never go into the woods ever again because there's a witch out there. Yep. You scare the kids with this cautionary tale of what happens. So those kind of things are are but now magnify that and say that that supernatural thing that we try to caution our kids or we caution people about is real. Mm-hmm. But we don't know what is real. We don't know what it's actually doing. We don't know uh, where things are at with that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's 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 what it is, and that that plays upon expectations, really. And, and that's I, I feel that's the fear that you're trying to evoke. There is yeah. you're playing upon expectations of this is normal. <laughs> Everybody here is happy. Sorry, I'm trying to I'm yeah. trying to scare my two co-hosts here. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> But certainly, you know, certainly going to that point, there's a lot of places in Eberron where you could tell that kind of story. So the Shadow Marches and the Eldeen Reaches are both excellent for it, uh, especially in the Eldeen Reaches. You have places like the Gloaming. Uh, but on the other hand, you can also just have an isolated Brelish village, mm-hmm. you know, that just happens to be... Uh, say, out on the border between, you know, Breland and Droam. Uh, but, you know, basically, again, there's a lot of places where, you know, the, the key of telling that kind of story is just that idea that it is an isolated place with a small, tight, you know, a small community and without access to a lot of the resources you're used to. You can't just get on the uh, the lightning rail to get away or get on a civis message station and ask someone to explain the thing that you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think as well, even just coming closer, I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily have to go out to the fringes of society, but I think you can do good folk horror in Thrain. Um, oh, for sure. And yeah, exactly. I think specifically because, you know, I think being central Corvair, central five nations, it's, it's, ruined by the last war you know you have communities which are really struggling to recover from you know a century of warfare and then you also have sort of the central role of the i guess the priesthood of the the silver flame and and you know you can you can have your local priests of the silver flame who are very much against supernatural horror elements um, sort of being that small flickering candle of lights while the world crumbles around them. Um, uh, they they or, sort of play the same role as you know, like an, a, a priest might in a in a in a you know a Grimm's Tales horror story or so. You know that kind of imagery. Or you can flip it around, you know, because I completely agree with that one hundred percent. But you can also flip it around and go to your uh, Ondarian village, where the priest of the Silver Flame is that light who's protecting us all from the darkness until we discover that actually, yes, once every five years they burn a stranger, <laughs> a couple of strangers uh, alive because yeah. they need to feed the flame, uh, and and so you know, because again, part of horror, as we said, is things not being what they're expected. You know, so um, I will say we've we've talked for a while. We're running somewhat short on time. I do want to call out that uh, the blog post I've made that we linked in the article uh, is a blog post called Ghost Stories in Eberron. 
And it is specifically looks at uh, various types of undead and the ways in which they essentially fit into the world. And that actually specifically does tell a couple of different stories that fit different types of uh, horror, even though it's called ghost stories. uh, Really, the story about ghouls is in many ways more a body horror story. Uh, The white story is more a ghost story. And, you know, the story that opens it with Soramina is more of a folk horror story. Mm -hmm. So I do recommend taking a look at that uh, because that'll give some more very concrete examples of this kind of thing. Yeah. I guess the last one, Mm -hmm. the last one we kind of really call out and Ravenloft traditional is that gothic horror stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I'll be honest for a long time. I actually didn't really know what gothic horror was. Mm -hmm. Um, You're like, you talk about like vampires and, and werewolves and, you know, demon hunters and stuff like that. I mean, like again, I don't really understand horror very well, so I, I couldn't understand. I, I couldn't understand what this was until basically, you know, you know, grow up a little bit, you figure it out. But in terms of gothic horror, if you're trying to get that traditional Ravenloft Barovia feel, there's a lot of places in, in Eberron that really kind of will match this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where the the brooding gargoyles are not necessarily gargoyles or or stone statues, you know. There's some horrible beast. You just can't quite tell what it is, right? Uh, or it's the werewolf sitting on the roof or the, the, the brooding vampire. Not sparkly, uh, brooding vampire there, that uh, sort of thing. But I, I think I, I think the the quintessential um, you know, gothic horror area in in, in Abraham is is Carnath. I uh I agree. And, and I have to, you know, sort of add to that. Of course, I think Van Richten's guide actually does a good job of drawing out some of the specific points of um, Gothic horror and saying it's not just sort of the atmosphere, but also it is about not just horror, but tragedy. It is about emotion. It is about romance. Uh, I think Carnath is the perfect place for it because not only do you have the general Gothic feel, but you also have this Essentially, this is why the blood of Vol is in Karnath, mm. is it is this bleak, harsh environment. People are very driven by duty, uh, you know, that it is a good place to sort of build on those and say, oh, what is the tragic, you know, in what way are you failing to uphold your, your duty or are you expected to do this thing? Or, oh, your people are suffering from a famine or, you know, sort of... Uh, it's a matter of it's it's both explore the sort of oh cold bleak beautiful environments, but also think about what is my character's tragic flaw, what is my you know one true love which I'm going to lose, uh, and and you know that is is part of where that is. But I do think uh, Karnath is an excellent place for that. It, well. You know what? Suffering from a famine is Tuesday. Well, it's true. Uh, And and that is a secondary point that one can bring up anywhere with that is the last war itself just does create that possibility of you can take a city anywhere. You can have a city on the edge of Brayland that is a grand city, but, oh, it was, you know, hit by... uh, air raids during the last war and the industry has collapsed somewhat and oh your family you're from the noble family but you're not sure how you're going to feed people in winter you know i mean you can build up uh some of those tragic elements anywhere 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a <clears throat> in, in terms of the tragedy aspect. The last war creates tra- created yeah. tragedy. You know, it, it created missing people, not just the Moorlands, whatever. Just yep. yeah, everybody knew somebody who was in the war. Probably someone who died. I mean, yep. it's mm. it's not a it's not a fun thing. It's only been a few years <laughs> you know, since since then. I mean. You know, I, I don't want to draw too much on the real world, but basically, you know, we're going through some tragedy right tragedy mm-hmm. right now. Uh, if you're listening to this in 20, 2021. And if you're listening um, to it in 2031, I hope everything's okay. That, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, drawing upon those, drawing upon that that sort of horror um, is, is interesting, definitely. And th- I think this is the one that, knocks closest to home because you don't need a vampire to have something horrible happen. I think he's trying to scare us again. We're great. Thanks. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't want to go too much. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. <laughs> the cat was scarier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, guys. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, we've gone pretty long today, uh, which is pretty usual for us, but uh, we've gone a little bit long today. And um, if you have any questions or any comments, or whatnot. Uh, we're going to skip over some of the the dark gifts specifically and and the the player stuff because I think that's a that's a really hopefully the hopefully if you're listening to this you're you're getting some ideas of how some of these these ideas can be used and we really want to give you guys a broad aspect on in terms of uh, horror is not something that we usually talk about um, in, in Eberron. You know, we talk more about noir and swashbuckling adventure <laughs> um, and pulp and and whatnot and now this is the yeah, yeah this but- is the, uh, the See the underside. Right, but the key point is that it was always intended to be there. You know, that in creating Eberron, pulp and noir were the sort of primary focuses, but we designed the world wanting you to be able to tell any kind of story you wanted. And specifically things like the Dalkir, the Cults of the Dragon Below, the Morning, those were always there as things that could be used as the foundation of horror stories. And we hope that some of this will have been useful. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's the best place to, to close out the episode. Um, so thank you all for listening. Uh, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, um, or you can leave a review on a podcast service of your choice if you're feeling generous. Um, so please do let us know what you think, what you think. Um, and join us next time as we're going to talk about Thalanis and the Fae. And until then, keep exploring. <laughs>